An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is John Hale, Morningstar's Head of Sustainability Research. John is a longtime Morningstar veteran, having headed the Investment Advisory Unit, supervised much of Morningstar's manager research in North America, and led the development of Morningstar's sustainability ratings. John holds a PhD from Indiana University, where his thesis analyzed the evolution of political perspectives in the United States from 1964 to 1984, a seminal period that saw the dominant political philosophy shift from a post-war consensus liberalism to a Reagan-style conservatism. He's exactly the type of guest we like. He thinks creatively, has opinions informed by facts, and tackles some of the big issues facing investors and the world today. So welcome, John. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. So what's your origin story? We, we find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. And your early career reads like you were going to become a traditional academic. You got a PhD in political science, you taught at universities. So how'd you wind up where you are today professionally? Yeah, it was uh, a bit circuitous, I guess. I had a, a poli-sci colleague uh, nearing retirement at the time, this was in the 1990s, who was very interested in uh, mutual funds. And he got me interested in both investing and in Morningstar, which was the, the source of a lot of his uh, uh, information. And um, I was interested in the fact that Morningstar was still a <clears throat> small company, around 200 employees at the time, 10,000 today. Um, and it was at the, at the center of this ex sort of exploding mutual fund uh, uh, trend in investing. And, and you know, I like the idea of helping people make better investment decisions. Um, but also more prosaically, Morningstar was located in Chicago where my spouse had a job. And, uh, you know, I was, I was hired by a guy who had a PhD in history. So I, I thought it, it, you know, it, it kind of aligned uh, with uh, some things that uh, I was interested in. So I took the plunge during a summer uh, when I could still go back and teach in the fall, but decided to, to stick with it and accept uh, for a sort of brief two-year hiatus. Uh, I've been at Morningstar ever since, uh, 1995. Um, and, and, and although none of this would have transpired had I not just happened to have seen a tiny little want ad in the Chicago Tribune on a Sunday on a weekend when I happened to be up in Chicago visiting my wife. So I applied, you know, kind of on a whim, completely forgot about it. And then it's like six weeks later, I got a call uh, for an interview. So that was, uh, you know, the, the story of how I got, how I got to Morningstar. I, my first investment though, uh, during my academic uh, career, uh, that I ever made was in the TIAA CREF Social Choice Fund. Uh, and, and so when I got to Morningstar, I sort of sought out uh, SRI funds, as we called them at the time, um, kind of quickly became the resident expert, but that was mainly because no one else was, was much interested in it. So we've come a long way since the 1990s. 
we have. It seems like everyone's interested in it, including some people who probably shouldn't be. But so there's been this explosion of interest in sustainable investing or investing that considers environmental, social, and governance factors, ESG investing. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to the various strains of what people mean by that in a minute. But first, let me ask you a philosophical question. Um, as you said, back then, no one was interested, and you and I have been working in this field for decades. Why has ESG become mainstream in the last few years? Is it sustainable, no pun intended, or is it the flavor of the year? Well, I think it's, I think it's sustainable, uh, John. I think, you know, for, for nearly a half century, if you go back to, you know, around, say, 1980 or so, I think investors have been demanding something of companies, and that's namely that companies drive profits for shareholders through you know, maximizing operating efficiencies and um, often at the expense of other stakeholders, including, you know, workers and you know, communities that they do business in and the environment. And, and, and part of that view sort of on the political side of things was keeping regulations minimal to non-existent so that uh, businesses could, uh, could, could externalize costs onto the rest of society. And the patron saint was uh, of all this, Milton Friedman said famously that the social responsibility of business uh, is to increase profits and that's it. Today, I just think that that view is increasingly seen as, you know, one that's contributed to Systemic breakdowns, starting with the financial crisis, um, has helped spur the growth of inequality and the climate crisis, um, the and the depletion of natural resources. Then we have the pandemic, which has highlighted inequality, but also sort of interconnectedness and the undervaluing of work. And so now I think you know investors are demanding something different from companies, namely that they adjust their business models to focus on creating value for all stakeholders to address the externalities they create uh, rather than simply lobby government to avoid paying for them. Um, and, you know, I think the rationale is that embedding um, sustainability into corporate strategy and behavior will ultimately make for a stronger, more resilient systems, you know, environmental, social, economic, uh, and at the same time, create more long-term value for shareholders. And so I think that's kind of what's happened. I, I think a key part of that development is the, the, the change in, in views has to do also with the availability of ESG metrics and ratings and, and all this information that we now have available to us. We're in an era of radical transparency with the internet and social media. And, and now we have tools like natural language processing and, and AI in which really unprecedented amounts of um, information on uh, corporations can be, you know, collected and archived and analyzed. Everything a company does today becomes part of its, you know, permanent record. It, like, it reminds me of, you know, you misbehave in, in, in grammar school and they tell you it's going to be on your permanent record and you think, oh God, I shouldn't have done that. But, but, you know, where, where formerly an instance of a corporation behaving badly could be pretty much spun out of the headlines uh, in a couple of days, oftentimes today, that, that kind of stuff lives on forever. And so I think the existence of this kind of information and our ability to deal with it is having a, an effect. I don't know, in 2015, you know, when we first started our sustainable investing initiative at Morningstar, I'm not sure how many 
public companies really even knew what ESG stood for. And, you know, fast forward to today and there's, I, there's no one that wants to be an ESG laggard for sure. And many are, you know, really aggressively trying to embed sustainability into their uh, business models. So I think we've, you know, really seeing a kind of um, change away from that libertarian ethos to um, a, a sustainability ethos. Um, and and it ha it's happening, you know, across society. I think it's certainly a generational shift. You know, B schools in the 1980s were all, you know, full of libertarians. Today, they're full of, I don't know what, what we should call them, sustainabillions. I don't know what the term would so be, it, but, it, you, it was, you know. Yeah, it's also a great point about AI and instantaneous communication and the inability to act badly without anyone seeing it. But I want to push back on Milton Friedman for a second and also ask you a question um, as to a cause for the explosion of ESG that may combine your academic and practitioner theory. Everyone forgets the end of that quote, which is, I think, Milton Friedman being misunderstood. What he said was the social responsibility of businesses is to make a profit within the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your thesis and whichever is on the political spectrum you're on, I would argue that both parties back then, when you were thinking about your thesis, were A, motivated by beliefs, B, those beliefs were grounded in reality and fact. And C, while both sides clearly wanted to win, they also wanted to govern once they won to implement those beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So, was, And they wanted to affect government if they didn't win. I'm not sure that's the case today. There seems to be more of a willingness to play to the political extremes, not worry about governing. And the philosophies, quite honestly, seem malleable, able to be pushed and pulled to fit personalities and power politics and fundraising rather than either facts or a consistent political philosophy. So is part of the reason we see a growth in the interest in sustainability because investors, who after all wrestle people and citizens, are concerned that government is so ineffective at dealing with these issues and you can no longer rely on the rules of the game because there aren't rules in the game? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, that's, and this also gets into to some of the uh, critiques that we've uh, heard of, of uh, sustainable investing, which, which I, I don't agree with, which is that it's somehow like distracting investors away from the need for public policy solutions to some of these uh, problems. I think that there is this um, sense in which the, the libertarian ethos that I think has been pretty prominent in, in, um, in our politics and policymaking for the last uh, almost half century um, has uh, limited the capacity of government. It's, it's been a, when, when um, you know, when Republicans are in, in charge, there, there's not a, a real strong uh, sense of uh, putting even competent people uh, in government because the, the, the respect for government is so, uh, is so lacking. And so we've had this ongoing, I think, sense uh, across uh, a lot of society that that government really isn't the answer because we haven't seen government be able to really take on the big issues effectively over the last half century or so. So I think there is something to that and something to investors saying, you know what, one, one thing we can do is as uh, shareholders, we can try uh, to um, influence uh, corporate decision-making that way in the absence of the ability of the political system to respond to 
to uh, problems. I said we would go to the various strains of ESG. So let me ask you about mm. that because I find that people, they often talk past each other when they discuss sustainable investing or ESG. And I think mm -hmm. that's because they mean very different things. So people talk about like an ESG stock as if there's a separate stock listing exchange for ESG stock listing. Yes. Um, and they invest in different ways. So some consider how ESG factors affect a portfolio company, so-called outside immateriality or ESG degradation. Some want to align their investments with their beliefs, the traditional, you know, SRI, uh, quite honestly, preferences having nothing to do with performance or anything else. Some focus on how a company affects the world impact investing. Um, can you give us an overview of how Morningstar thinks about these different strains of ESG investing and whether Morningstar's research is more useful to one strain of ESG or another and how investors and others should think about it? It's something I worked a lot on uh, just this past year. Our definition of sustainable investing is a broad one. It's, it's, it's basically um, any investment that seeks both competitive returns and positive ESG outcomes, uh, we would call a sustainable investment. But the thing is, it, it's not one single approach. Um, and that's, that is one of the things that you see in a lot of the criticisms of, uh, the, that, you know, the, the, the implication is that yes, there's, it's just one approach it's, and it's basically either, or, or it's two approaches. It's either just excluding things. Um, or basing your entire investment decision solely on the basis of an ESG rating of a company. And in fact, really the field is much broader than that and much more sophisticated than that. Um, we identified six distinct underlying approaches that are commonly used today in sustainable investing, ranging from the use of exclusions uh, to a focus on using ESG metrics primarily to assess risk. Um, to using ESG factors to generate opportunities for alpha. Um, and then there are these sort of broader kinds of perspectives that are more like um, theme, thematic investments, sustainability themed investments, um, investments that include impact assessments. Um, and then finally, I think this is six, finally, last but not certainly not least in my mind is active ownership activities. And so what we find, you know, as we talk to, funds and asset managers and so forth is that, um, you know, in any given sustainable fund or strategy or portfolio, um, they may be using one or be combining several or all of these approaches. And it's oftentimes very uh, unclear to end investors what a particular fund is doing. So we're trying to orient our research to helping investors understand that ESG sustainable investing is not just a single approach and to help investors um, understand the variety of ways that an investment uh, may seek to generate positive ESG outcomes alongside competitive performance. Now, um, our flagship rating, the sustainability rating for funds is based on sustainalytics ESG risk ratings of companies. So it is truly a measure of ESG risk and how much ESG risk is embedded in a fund's portfolio relative to peers. Um, so, you, you know, you kind of ask like, is there anything Morningstar's, you know, sort of more uh, 
focused on or what our what our work kind of uh, helps with the most. I think it's uh, being able to uh, compare funds uh, on this uh, idea of ESG risk and how much is embedded in a portfolio. But um, we're coming out this year with fund level impact assessments um, based on work that Sustainalytics is doing. Um, we, we have data on what funds use what exclusions, uh, so uh, investors can find that out. Um, and we have uh, proxy voting data for, for US-based funds. Uh, and you'll see that increasingly in, the, in our coverage of how uh, funds and asset managers vote on ESG issues. So in recognizing the, the, the scope of, um, of the field, we're trying to develop uh, tools for investors to better understand it in, in all its facets. So I'm going to put you on the spot in two ways, and they're somewhat contradictory, just so I can understand if this is something that currently exists or that you're moving towards. Your definition of competitive returns with positive ESG outcomes. Um, if all I'm doing is ESG integration, considering the risk on my funds, which is what Sustainalytics does, what's the positive, is that a positive ESG outcome? Is my first question. Mm -hmm. So why don't we go with that? We'll All right. So, so, I mean, my argument there is in, in ESG integration, I think one of the reasons why we've, we've identified both ESG risk and using ESG to seek out opportunities for alpha is because um, when uh, asset managers say they are integrating ESG, it, it's unclear what they mean. Most of the time it is true that they mean they're focusing primarily on just kind of using ESG to help them better assess risk. Um, I, I think it has a, a big picture impact and that the big picture impact is that as public companies um have come to understand and i to me this has happened and it's been a sea change in just the last five years or so they come to understand that their investor base now consists of esg investors to a significant degree um, maybe even not to that significant degree it doesn't take that many you know, necessarily that many to kind of grab your attention and, and cause you to, to take, to make changes. I think as, as more companies perceive that investors are interested in ESG issues, they are taking steps to uh, address them and okay. that we can see that happening. So, so it's a very, you know, it's, it's a broad based uh, effort. I think every dollar put into ESG, um, it, no matter in what form it is, 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 is contributing to that impact. Um, so, so that's what I would say about ESG risk and, and, you know, that kind of focus and how is it having impact? So, so my second question is, as you said, Morningstar's flagship sustainability rings is based on, it's a holdings based analysis. In other words, yeah. what's in the fund, not what are you doing to impact the companies, the fund. And so, um, just to take, the headline environmental issue last year was Engine One's campaign at Exxon, which resulted in three new board directors, and it yep. was waged off of a climate basis. So if you were looking at Engine One as a fund, it was a horrible fund for ESG. It had one stock, so it's not diversified, and that stock was Exxon. And yet it was the flagship climate thing. So if you only look at holdings, aren't you emphasizing divestiture and exclusions and underweightings and overweightings 
as opposed to <clears throat> engagement or trying to have impact at the company? And what, how is Morningstar evolving to deal with that sort of issue? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, well first of all, I, I'd say when I first sort of had the light bulb go off in my, the, the energy saving LED light bulb go off in my head in 2015, <laughs> I was talking to the, to the CIO of a large asset owner who was in the process at that time of shifting his PMs as sub-advisors from, or, or, you know, the managers he'd hired to, to manage uh, from, from just investing around the asset owners, uh, list of exclusions, simple, everybody could do that to now wanting them to actively incorporate, to integrate ESG. And he told me, you know, the thing is they're all telling me they're doing it, but I don't have any way to verify it. And so that's what gave me the idea circa 2015 to, to use company level ESG ratings to characterize overall portfolios. And it, you know, it was in keeping with, with Morningstar's sort of longstanding emphasis on, you know, sort of lifting up the hood and trying to characterize funds, not by what they say they're about, but based on their, their actual holdings. Um, at the time in the funds world, there were only about 135 intentional ESG funds available in the US. So I wanted something that we could apply across all funds Presumably, um, the 135 funds, generally speaking, would come out on top of the ratings. But with more and more investors becoming um, interested in sustainability, I thought we needed a broader measure, and that this was this was a, a, a way to do it. So, yes, it's a it's a measure. The sustainability rating of funds is a is a ESG risk measure of ESG risk relative to peers. Um, why didn't we call it that? I mean, we you know it, it, it's you know kind of implied in the question is like the sustainability rating is a, maybe a bit overstated, particularly in 2022, um, given the range of, of, um, uh, of ways that sustainable investing can be practiced. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at that as we go forward. Um, but at the time, I mean, I wanted to make a splash with it. I wanted to grab attention. And I think that happened. I mean, I think it caused asset managers across the board to take stock of the sustainability ratings of their funds. What does this mean? Are we okay with it? What are we doing on ESG? Um, and then for the intentional ESG funds and asset managers, I think it caused them to think harder about how they would differentiate themselves from conventional funds that seem to have the same level of ESG risk in their portfolio. So, uh, you know, I think I, I, that it's true that, that we did kind of hone in on one particular kind of element of what today we would say is a range of approaches to ESG, but, but that it, it had a, a good impact on really helping focus um, the, the investment industry around sustainability, how they're going to address it, how they need to get up to speed on it. Let, let me read you a quote from a previous guest on Outside In, the indomitable Del Bino, who may be one of the very few people who have been in this field longer than either you or I. And she said, and I quote, the interest in ESG is far ahead of the capacity to assess or evaluate it. And as with any topic that has reached the tipping point, a lot of people and organizations are slapping ESG labels on themselves to get a piece of the action, end quote. Given that, and given the complexities we've discussed about the different strains and versions of ESG, how can an average investor be sure that an asset manager is actually doing what they say they're going to do and, and even know what they're, what they're saying they do? 
what research should an investor do or look at? It's a, it's a great question. And, and, and you know, by the way, I, I, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, we were talking about the, the shift from, to, to, to more of a sustainability focus. Uh, and, and I think there's a gener really a generational component to this. And I'm, you know, I'm personally looking forward to perhaps the, the sort of next wave of sustainable investing that is going to be more led by a younger generation that doesn't have as much of the, uh, a more traditional libertarian baggage. And, and I think, uh, hopefully that'll result in more, um, innovative and, uh, holistic, uh, products that, are, that really pinpoint that, um, that sustainability, um, ethos that, uh, so many people have today, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, I look at sustainable investments in some ways, it's not that much, particularly for individual investors, not that much different from sustainable consumer products. There tends to be a, a gap between those, um, who say they want to consider sustainability in their purchases and, and the number that actually do it. And we see this in investor surveys all the time. And I think part of the reason for the gap is that it's not easy for investors, you know, or consumers really to evaluate a product's sustainability claims. So I'm not sure, you know, the investment side, we're not that unique in, in that regard, but um, I think sustainable funds need to be much more transparent um, one about the specific sustainable investment approach or approaches that they employ. It's, it's not easy really to find that information in the funds literature, um, on portfolio holdings. I, I, I think we need to provide more, um, uh, information on what the sort of ESG thesis for a holding is. You don't see very many funds doing that. Um, I think sustainable funds should also lean into their active engagement and proxy voting activities and report on those. Uh, they think that really resonates with investors um, and are the best proof point of all of the authenticity of a funds and an investor's you know commitment to generating positive ESG outcomes. Um, I think every asset manager should have a, a statement on climate change front and center on their websites, how we are protecting your investments from climate risk. Um, and every sustainable asset manager and fund should have an impact assessment, you know, report that details the ways in which the fund is contributing to positive ESG outcomes. So I guess for today, for an investor, I would look for those kinds of things. And, and, you know, if you, if you, uh, come away from, uh, looking on websites and, you know, you check prospectuses and those sorts of things, but you can't really find uh, the, the, the answers to questions that you have about, um, a, a fund's uh, sustainability, then, then I would, I'd look elsewhere. We have a lot of FAs and RAs, uh, financial advisors, registered investment advisors who listen to this. And, um, I think the, the positive trend is that many of the investment managers, including, you know, large indexers and others, um, now put out an impact report. Um, so that might be a good place to start. We went all this time uh, without talking about regulation. Uh, we talked about the ethos of regulation over the last 50 years, but not current regulation. Um, the SEC obviously at this point has a climate draft out as we record this and is talking about a human capital management draft. There's the creation of the new International Sustainability Standards Board, which is accounting based out of the EU. Um, actually out of much of the world with the mm. exception of the United States, because it's based on international financial reporting standards. Um, any 
big picture takeaways about where we are regulatorily? Um, it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to get more favorable permanent regulatory regime inside the U.S. Um, despite the favorable action the Biden administration has taken, I, I think the fight still needs to be won. We all need to understand that um, the political right in the United States has started to identify ESG as a culture war issue, um, you know, claiming that it's a sort of multicultural you know, liberals are taking over asset managers and corporations to pursue a, you know, a, a political agenda of diversity and climate change that has nothing to do with making money and, and everything to do with uh, further, um, you know, kind of lowering the status of those who have traditionally held all the power in, in, in our uh, society. And, and, you know, it all cleverly ties in with anti-corporate populism, which can be found just as much on the right as the left. So I think we'll see legal challenges to the SEC's climate disclosure rule once it's in place. I think we'll see reactions to the DOL's efforts to encourage ESG and retirement plans, which will all come from this, you know, sort of right-wing legal establishment uh, that is, uh, I think, girding for that fight. So I, I hope that we are ready for that. We're also seeing Republican-controlled states like uh, Texas and others attempting to blacklist asset managers uh, in, uh, that are addressing climate change uh, and, and uh, trying to av avoid fossil fuels in some way. And, and um, so, uh, you know, and even, the, even the, the Republicans in Florida punishing Disney for speaking out against the don't say gay bill is kind of a, you know, nakedly authoritarian move by a state government to to uh, limit free speech in violation of the First Amendment, but it's all it's all kind of part and parcel of this. So I, I'm, you know, I, I hope the Biden administration gets the climate disclosure rule and the DOL uh, rules in place, but I don't know that that's going to be the last word on those things. Okay, let's finish with some quick questions and answers. Um, right. How do you relax? Let's put it this way: it depends on what state I'm in. <laughs> but, but I'm always listening to music. Let's just, let's just go there. <laughs> so what music do you listen to? <laughs> well, I mean, passing time in the pandemic, I've, I've gone, delved into rock history. I've listened to rock music all my life, but I've created uh, rock playlists on Spotify for every year from 1968, which is like the first year I can kind of remember being interested in music all the way up into the 2000s. I've still got a few years to go, but it kind of tends towards, you know, like, roots rock alternative americana jam band so it's not strictly you know greatest hits or anything so, like so that but name two or three of your favorite musical acts well uh you know well we're looking forward to see as we do every summer uh dead and company with uh, john mayer at uh, wrigley field this summer um we just saw wilco last week which is a great chicago-based band that's been around for the last 25 years or so, but, you know, I've really been enjoying, I guess what I would call, you know, contemporary, uh, female artists and bands and what they're doing. There's like, so self-assured. So, and the music is like, so empowering, great stuff from, um, people like, um, Brandy Carlisle, um, Lucius, uh, uh, uh Hatchie, Haim. I mean, like, you know, they're, they're just all over. It's amazing. The, the, I feel like women dominate rock today. It's in, in lots of great stuff uh, there that I've been listening to. I read an old interview with you where you said that when people visit Chicago, 
they should go to where you live, which is Oak Park. And there are a bunch of great brew pubs. So what type of beer do you like and why? <laughs> um, yeah, the pandemic's hit, hit the brew pub industry a bit, but we still have, we still have a few in, in place. Uh, I mean, you know, John, for me, it depends on the time of year, I guess I would say summer days, you know, nothing better from, to me than a Mexican lager with a twist of lime, but you know, in the fall, Oktoberfest, I enjoy, um, IPAs in the winter springtime. I mean, recently I've, I've really been enjoying Czech style Pilsners. So just, yeah, kind of a seasonal thing. I don't get too, too focused on, on just one. Match your seasonal beer with your seasonal food. Great. Last question. If you could magically say something into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? <laughs> Probably a joke, but I'm not very good at telling them. <laughs> Beyond that, uh, you know, be, be good to people. Show some empathy. That's probably it. Okay. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, John Hale, um, Morningstar's longtime sustainability guru, um, with some really nuanced and interesting answers about what's going on in the field today. Thanks so much, John. Great to be here, John. Thanks. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor O'Higasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.